Okay, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today on the pod, we have got Danielle Ryan Broida, a classically trained herbalist and a highly engaging raconteur, who is also the national educator for a little mycopreneurial venture called Four Sigmatic. You might have heard of them. And Danielle's going to be educating us today about some of the pinning developments and innovations coming out of the Four Sigmatic Laboratories, which in reality are actually reimaginations and recontextualizations of ancestral knowledge and wisdom for leveraging fungi. And that's what it's all about. We are not reinventing the wheel here. We're just learning how to ghost ride. So what kind of mycopreneurial innovations slash reimaginations are we talking about here? Well, how about mushroom-based edible skincare products that can double as a creamer in your lion's mane coffee? It's true though, and we're gonna dive into it today. Danielle will also share some of her best practices for polysaccharide extraction. She's gonna share the process for medicinal mushroom tincture production. We're gonna talk a little bit about home fungi cultivation. We're also exploring the intersection of consumer habits and the global supply chain. And we're getting down to business right now. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Danielle Ryan Broida of Four Sigmatic. How's it going, Danielle? Thanks for joining us today on the Mycopreneur Podcast. It's going really well. Thanks for having me. So, Danielle, I got to let you know about the first time I tried a Four Sigmatic product, which was actually about two years ago. I was at a film screening for the sensational film Fantastic Fungi that was live and in person at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego. Paul Stamets and director Louis Schwartzberg were actually in attendance, and someone was passing out Four Sigmatic, and I stocked up on it and recently ran out. So that's my little origin story. It's got a nice, stimulating, visceral memory to it. But yeah, how's it going today? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, that's so awesome. I was I just moved to California from Colorado, and when Fantastic Fungi premiered in Denver, I spoke with Louie on the panel out there, so I'm glad the Four Sigmatic kind of trickled throughout the other screenings, which is great, and perfect time to stock you up on more. Perfect. Well, one of the talking points that we discussed in our back and forth was about maybe an effective way to sort of phase out coffee or to, to supplant coffee. And I got to let you know, I'm an unabashed caffeine addict. People listening to the podcast probably know that already, but that, yeah, there is a downside. Uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. is pretty ugly for me generally. So what are some strategies that you might employ for naturally replacing caffeine and coffee, which so much of the world runs on and thrives with, with more gentle, maybe more serviceable products that Four Sigmatic or that someone else out in the Canon offers? Yeah, great question. So coffee in and of itself isn't bad. It really comes down to quality and quantity. And believe it or not, coffee is the number one source of antioxidants in the American diet. So if we're sourcing our coffee properly and we're using the right quality and in the right amount, it can be really beneficial. And there's a lot of discussion about this in the nutrition world, but I'm pro-coffee but it really comes down to that quality piece. And if you're getting organic, fair trade, really great coffee, and you're still experiencing some of the negative side effects, there's this fine line, right? So you drink one cup of coffee, we say always a good idea. Two cups, sometimes a good idea. Three cups, never a good idea. And what that really means is there's a, there's a curve where you can get in the flow with coffee, 
right? You're focused, you're alert, you have this amazing sense of energy. And if you take that little bit too much, you're in this place where there's jitters, you're sweating, you know, you can get anxiety, you get this big crash. And so how can we optimize this coffee habit? Because habits are hard to develop and they can be a beautiful thing, right? When we talk about our mushrooms, they're not this pill for an ill. It's not like you take it once and all your problems are gone. Consistency is key. And so I think about, okay, what routines already exist? What do we have in place? And coffee is one of the most classic routines that no one's really going to give up. And so turns out there's this really incredible synergy that can happen when we add adaptogens like functional mushrooms into our morning brew. Um, not only is there this synergy where caffeine is a stimulant, so it's taxing our system, it's pulling from our adrenals, pumping this adrenaline and cortisol through our bloodstream. Adaptions are tonifying to the adrenals. They support our stress response. And so there's this almost pulling and refilling act that's happening at the same time, where when we add adaptogens to our coffee, we don't get that big crash, you know, the big peak and valley. It's almost like that bullet coffee where there's this smoother flow of energy. The other thing that happens is oftentimes we drink coffee for a certain benefit. We want to wake up our body, our mind, and what ends up happening is we get this big rush of caffeine without it being focused on why we turn to the coffee in the first place. And so we can add functional ingredients like lion's mane, amazing mushroom to add to our coffee, which is supporting our cognition, our memory, our mental function, so that we actually get that effect of turning on, busting out emails, right? That acute light switch on the brain effect. And it's more potent than just the coffee would be on its own. So such a no-brainer to add mushrooms or adaptions into your coffee if you're already a coffee drinker. And I think therein, the importance is scrutinizing the quality of what you're adding, because some of the conversations we've been having on this podcast are about the shroom boom is happening, and there's a lot of unscrupulous players who are kind of cashing in on that. And I've definitely bought a few products that I've used religiously for the duration of that product's life, life cycle, and I'm like, I'm not getting any effect from this. Just because it says it has cordyceps on it or it says it has lion's mane, I really don't know where this, this is coming from. So I've been a big advocate of this idea of know your grower, know where it's coming from. I love companies mm -hmm. that are transparent. You know, shout out to Alex Dorr and Mushroom Revival, all the education they're doing. Uh, I want people to know what they're getting because I've talked to several people who have said, yeah, I ordered a lion's mane coffee product. You know, I got it on Amazon and uh, I'm not really feeling much of a difference. And I live in the heart and center of the coffee region here in Mexico in Chiapas. So I have access to some of the best coffee in the world, literally all around me. But I usually drink like six to eight cups. So I think that goes past that threshold. There's like a law or a point of diminishing <laughs> returns there. Um, but I'm working on yeah. it. And I got to say, I'm really looking forward to leveling up and, and getting back to having some like real legit lions made in my coffee because the stuff I bought at the apothecary down the street, I'm not really sure where they got it. I know they didn't grow it. They probably sourced it in bulk on Amazon. So I think that's really important just to know the quality of what you're getting and, and putting it into your coffee. Yeah, that's huge. We actually use coffee from Chiapas as well. Uh, so you're, you're in the heart of it. And I'm so glad you brought up quality because not only is it the quality of our beans and our coffee, but it is, there's this huge gray area when it comes to the functional mushroom space of what are you actually getting? And as an herbalist, my 
belief is kind of twofold. It's how can we use the ingredients in the way they've been used for thousands of years, that our ancestors used them, that we have the stories and the tradition behind, and what is modern science telling us? And how can we use the gold standard, the part of the fungi, the proper extraction, the cleanliness, right? So log-grown fruiting bodies that have been double extracted and are third-party tested, right? And and that's going to really weed out so many mushroom products from the bunch and ensure that you're actually feeling it. And that's such a cool place to come from too, because I feel like once you actually get that potency and that legitimacy, it really sucks you into the world of adaptogens and of functional mushrooms. And then you start kind of noticing more things in nature after that and our own synergistic relationship to nature and how we can kind of level up our energy levels throughout the day. Um, I'm coming from a background where I, you know, unapologetically and unabashedly just became a slave to caffeine, if you will. And I was drinking so much of it and that continues largely. And I'm looking for ways to have a smoother, more balanced energy to be able to tackle all of the crazy challenges that 2021 throws at us. So speaking of getting further into the practice of understanding where your mushrooms come from, or, or in my case in Chiapas, where your coffee comes from, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm an amateur mushroom cultivator. I've had a little bit of success with reishi. I've grown blue oysters. I'm taking a crack at cordyceps, but uh, cultivation doesn't come easily to me. Some people are just like, yeah, I get it. You know, it, you know I asked someone recently on the podcast, uh, William Padilla Brown, he said, yeah, it just comes naturally to me. I understand it. And for a lot of people, I talk to, there's this steep barrier to entry where you start hearing all this laboratory talk and talking about sterilization and about culture transfers and about agar, and it doesn't really register like it's something completely alien to us, right? So I'd be curious to hear yeah. if you had any pointers or best practices, if you could walk us through a little bit about DIY home mushroom cultivation, because I know you, you have quite an extensive background in that. So I'd just love for you to drop a little bit of knowledge about some of the best practices for people who are looking to get started and cultivating fungi at home. Yeah, this is a great question. And it is such a massive world and it's really meeting yourself where you're at. And if you're getting that desire and that pull and that call to start cultivating mushrooms at home, it's really never been easier than it is today. We have such a brilliant uh, way of, of cultivating using my preferred method is with liquid culture. And so the agar and the you know, petri plate, like there's so much that we really don't need anymore. And we've created these um, innovations in the growing space that makes it really simplified and accessible to experimenters. And I think giving yourself permission to fail many times is probably one of my best first pieces of advice. Like expect that it's not going to work out. And if anything better than that happens, you're going to be stoked. So Liquid culture is amazing. It's basically, you know, now you can order syringes online that have mycelium suspended in some sort of sugar water culture. And you can think of it like, um, I think of it like the mother culture of any sort of fermentation project. So a lot of people out there, I'm sure, are used to brewing jun or kombucha, or maybe over the past year and a half, they've taken on the habit of making sourdough at home. Think of a mushroom cultivation project similarly, where you can get your liquid culture in a syringe, create a mother starter, right? Which is like you add, you get your airport lid and you put it in a mason jar and that's your base. You know, that's your like SCOBY base essentially that you're always pulling from. 
And with really minimal equipment or equipment that you can make at home, now you can make your own glove box really easily out of a Rubbermaid bin. And if you can get your hands on a pressure cooker, um, some mason jars, some uh, alcohol for sterilization, there's not much more that you really need. Uh, so I'm all about, yeah, using the liquid culture, inoculating some sort of grains at home uh, and you can get creative with your grain of choice and you'll start to learn which species prefers uh, which types of substrates and uh, expect to fail and it's really about the process and connecting with the fungi connecting with um, nature in our own kitchens we have this ability to do that and uh, there's so many like simple courses as well that you can take, you know, I'm happy to guide people through it. And I do this with my students at herb school. And it's like, how can we just go from this three stage process, you know, as an herbalist, there's certain stages in all of our medicine making, whether it's flower essences or tincturing or making different teas. And with growing mushrooms, I like to think of it in that similar process where we have our mother culture we're inoculating our substrate and we can do that at home and talk deeper about any of these steps. And then we have our fruiting phase and it's taking it one step at a, at a time, setting really low standards for yourself so that every step of the way you're proud and you feel like you've accomplished something and know that anything that happens is part of the process. You learn so much. I remember some of my first oyster batches completely molded and I was so upset and I learned so much about the temperature and the placement and the failures are just as important as the successes. And it's about starting anywhere. And I think if we can start in any place, it's ordering a liquid culture syringe online and getting going. And like the rest of the steps will unfold. It's, it's really what I've learned with so many things. If you have this big vision and you try to do it all in one one fell swoop, it's never going to happen. But if you say, cool, I can, I can go online right now and I can order some liquid culture and I'm going to start there. And I promise the fungi are our teachers and our allies and our friends, and they'll start revealing the process to you. It might sound a little heady, but you will be shown the way if you take that first step. And that's such a key point right there, I think, is that willingness to fail that it scares a lot of people because, you know, I have maybe a year and a half of experience cultivating and most of that year and a half has been filled with contam. But then I talk to people who have been doing it for a decade or for two decades and they go, contam's a part of life. You know, that's going to happen. And my my first Rishi experiment in a bucket, I had written it off and I was just like too attached to it to completely throw it out. And then a couple weeks later, a couple shelves popped out and I thought, like you know this is awesome like I had some success so and then my other funny cultivation story I like to tell is uh I tried to grow shiitake uh fruits on a log and it took forever and it was, yeah. I was like following the instructions in a kit and it just didn't pan out and then all of a sudden one shiitake mushroom popped out of the log so at that point that was my first <laughs> grow I, t I told everyone I grow mushroom you know I don't grow mushroom I grow one mushroom you know that's what I got and you know just having access that's to hilarious to, right <laughs> but once you have a little bit of success then it's that iteration and prototype model where I say okay 
you know, I, I would have done this differently the next time around. I would have done this differently. And I felt such encouragement in the Myco community by reaching out to people and having people reach out to me who are quite literally guiding me and a, and a couple friends through the process and are, hey, FaceTime me if you have any questions, you know, walk us through your setup. What do you got going on? One of the things that's overwhelming about searching for information about DIY mushroom cultivation on the Internet is there's this dearth of information. There's this crazy amount of yeah. different text and different advice and different tools. So therein, I find yeah. it very beneficial to link up with people and with individuals because, you know, there's so many different ways to do it in the mycology community. You might get overwhelmed if you're just like casting a wide net on the internet. Being able to link up with someone like Danielle who's teaching courses and someone who has practical on-the-ground experience, I feel like that is by far the way to go. So I've been just trying to go to different workshops online and, you know, be more involved in the process. And that's the message I'm getting from the fungi is build the network, get more people, you know, more conversations going, and you're going to glean something from everyone on that because, you know, everybody's got a, s a skin in the game, everyone's got a stake, and there's a lot of different ways to yeah. peel a banana. Yeah, I love that. That's so spot on. And um, I think, you know, to offer one big kind of net resource and then hone in on what you said is I learned from Peter McCoy, which I'm so grateful for. He's incredible. And um, I had this little textbook before Radical Mycology was out. Um, and it was like the spark notes of it is in this little like black notebook. But if anyone wants to start, I mean, Radical Mycology is such a Bible for DIY cultivation. And then, like you said, Dennis, there's so many small communities and we all want to support each other. It's like the more mushrooms that we're growing, the more connected we are to this kingdom, the better it is for all of us. And so there's this really beautiful unfolding that happens where it's like, yeah, hey, I have a culture of, you know, pearl oyster and you have a culture of this lion's mane, like let's trade. And you get to really start supporting and helping each other. And everyone I found in this community wants to lend a hand and wants to learn. And so there's no hierarchy. We're really mimicking mycelial network where we're on the same page and we're supporting one another's growth. And so finding those little communities and they're popping up everywhere. And now we have the benefit of online communities as well. So no matter where you are in the world, you can find a group of cultivators and create your own little community that you're sharing tips and successes and failures and just supporting each other's growth, literally and, and figuratively. It's so beautiful in that I sense a real uh, cooperation over competition in the mycology industry or in mushroom cultivation and that some of these people who have, you know, pretty established reputations and businesses, et cetera, have taken the time to come on this podcast or to respond to DMs. And I've been able to build some amazing relationships out of it just because exactly as the, the sentiment you express. People want to see each other succeed and we want to see more mushrooms popping up and more interest and more cultivation going on. Now, speaking of that, once you do get cultivating and you find yourself with these fruiting bodies, what are you going to do with those, right? It depends on what you're going for and what you're cultivating. Lion's Mane is my next project I really want to get invested in. But you mentioned tinctures a moment ago. And mm. I have some freshly preserved fruiting body cordyceps, cordyceps militaris that my friend Gary from Fresh from the Farm Fungi sent me. Shout out, Gary. I love this guy. I love the farm out in Denver. And I've been experimenting with different ways to extract 
the polysaccharides. Again, I don't really have a very substantial scientific background. I took high school chemistry way back my sophomore year. So like getting into this whole process, talking about polysaccharides and making something bioavailable, I'm literally sending DMs where I'm like, can I eat this thing? Is that gonna work? He's like, well, it's not the best way to do it. You know, you can, so tinctures yeah. is what, what I'm getting from a lot of people and various friends who, who are making them. Um, I'm curious if you can walk us through a couple best practices there. I've got all the bells and whistles. I know you got to use like more or less 60 proof grain alcohol and there's, it's pretty simple to extract it. But uh, I know that's something in your wheelhouse, Danielle. So as I'm actively preparing to make my first cordyceps tincture <laughs> for my own personal use, I'd love it if you could walk us through some of your process and talk a little bit about your tincture making. I'm so proud of you, first and foremost, for making your own medicine. It's such an empowering process. And in my private practice as an herbalist, I would try to teach and convince all of my clients to make their own decoctions or tinctures. And I mostly worked with autoimmune conditions and chronic illnesses and all sorts of kind of uh, ailments that the Western world was like, we don't have any answers for you. And a lot of my clients are like, Danielle, you're crazy. I'm not going to make my own tincture. I can hardly get out of bed. Like, give me something I can do. So it just warms my heart that you're like, yes, I'm jumping in. I'm making my own tincture. Um, the important thing to know with medicine making is when we're using a whole plant or whole fungi, you know, fruiting body, there are literally, I mean, within our mushrooms, often hundreds of different compounds, constituents that potentially have medicinal benefits to the human body. And choosing the way that we're going to extract is going to determine what compounds we're pulling out and therefore what compounds are going to respond and have an action within our body. So when it comes to our functional mushrooms, extraction, extraction, extraction is key, right? I'm sure you talked about this, this with Alex and, you know, our bodies can't absorb uh, many of the beneficial compounds in mushrooms in their raw form, right? We have this chitin in the cell wall, so we have to extract. And the two traditional forms are through a decoction, this hot water brew. I think of like old medicine men and women stirring cauldrons full of mushrooms, which is a water extract. Um, really, if you want to pull out those polysaccharides, the 1316 beta glucans from the mushrooms, I would suggest in, at least in part doing the water extract as well, right? Because polysaccharides, they're complex sugars, right? Poly, many, saccharides, sugars. Sugar is water soluble, right? It dissolves in water. Think about making simple syrup, the sugar is gonna dissolve in water. So if we want a really immunomodulating uh, uh, formula extract, right? These polysaccharides are, are incredible. We call it cruise control for our immune system. They have this amazing support for either stimulating or suppressing immune cells. We can really extract those most potently in, uh, in this decoction form. However, the other way to break open chitin and extract our fungi is through alcohol, through a tincture. Uh, high quality alcohol is key. Uh, no association, but I'll call out a wonderful company that I use to source my alcohol. They're called Alchemical Solutions, and you can get uh, sugar cane or just this really pure alcohol. Uh, otherwise, you know, a classic herbalist will use like Everclear off the shelf. Um, and know that every fungi that we're using, right, all of our fruiting bodies can have a range of water in their raw, you know, in their in their fresh fruit form. So fungi can be like 30 to 90% water in, uh, in the fruiting body itself. So when you create the 
ratio of alcohol to water, you want to ensure that that's aligned with how much water is in the, the raw mushroom, you know, or if you're using dried, then you'll add additional water to your tincture. So, you know, best practices are when we're tincturing, whether it's with a fungi or with a, a plant, we want to break down our fungi into as many pieces as possible. Uh, as herbalists, we call this our mark to menstruum ratio. So the mark is the actual substance that we're extracting, the root or the fruiting body, and the more cells that we can expose, the better. So, you know, you can, we used to grind with a mortar and pestle. Now with my students, we'll throw our reishi slices into a Vitamix or our chaga chunk into a Vitamix and get it as broken up as possible, right? This is going to potentize our formula. And then matching the species that we're using to the right ratio of alcohol and water. So even if we're doing a tincture, we're still using part alcohol, part water. Um, and know that the higher alcohol, you're going to pull out more alcohol or oil soluble compounds, right? So if you were tincturing with, um, you're making a cordyceps tincture, if you want to pull out more cordycepin, you want to use a higher alcohol content versus if you wanted to pull out more of those polysaccharides, you could up the water content. Does that make sense? So a lot of what you're saying right now makes a lot of sense. It's putting it into practice that's going to be the real gold standard to see if this works. And, you know, other friends who have been on the podcast have mentioned about like a double mark extraction process. So I'm gathering uh -huh. that's similar to what you're describing right now. And again, that goes back to having that network where you can reach out to people directly. And part of the cool thing about this podcast so far is I feel like there's a real rising tide of people who are saying we're going to actually bring these forces into our life. We have have appreciation for fungi we have appreciation for herbs but traditionally we're consumers i was raised in a consumer culture and learning how to like take this process and production process into my own hands and into the hands of the community that i'm hanging out with and associating with that's a real leap forward as like that whole closed loop all right i'm going to support a lot of companies by buying their products because they work and they're turnkey but like i want to learn how to do this for myself i want to learn how to make a tincture and I'm going to definitely keep you updated on this because I'm absolutely going to be making one. Um, so I'd have to do a blind taste test, I guess, and, and figure out. Obviously, it's going to be my prototype, you know, but I'm committed to making a tincture. And when I'm doing it, I'm going to be listening to your step by step instructions right there, trying to like, you know, trying to make this thing for real, trying to make it trying to make it happen. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah. And I have a quick tip that should make it easier and less intimidating. So herbalists have a method of tincturing that's called the folk method. It's like the most basic, least scientific. It's like the folky, witchy herbalist. And you can start there. And it really takes all the barriers out of the way. And essentially, the easiest way to do it is when you're starting with fresh product, right? Fresh bark. So let's say you have your lion's mane and you've just harvested the fruiting body. You can break up and grind up that, um, that lion's mane. And essentially you just want to make sure when you're using the fresh, you know, whether it's the plant or the fungi, there's already going to be water content in there. So a folk method is literally pouring your high percentage alcohol, ideally pure grain alcohol over the mark. So 
the menstruum is the, the liquid, the alcohol in this case. The mark is the substance that you're extracting from. You can just grind that up and ensure that the menstruum, the alcohol, is covering all of your mark in a mason jar, right? And like, you just leave it because you know that there's already water content in the original form. You don't have to add more water. Ensure that the alcohol is covering it and leave it and then strain it out. Ideally, you let it sit in a darker place away from sunlight for a couple weeks. Um, we can get into other faster, like 24, 48 hour tincturing methods in a maybe 2.0, but that's like the folk method. And it makes it so simple. You grind up your, your mark, your mushroom, you pour alcohol over it, you let it sit. You know, that you can start there. I'm all about that simplicity, uh, first principles, and the folky witchy stuff. I've, you know, I, I spent some time down the Amazon, <laughs> been out to Ireland, and learned from a, a woman who very much identifies as a witch. And th this is all stuff that is, it's really exciting in that it's coming into the popular consciousness and mainstream America now and, and Western consumer culture. And I think that's really exciting because for years you had to go over to another part of the world to learn about this stuff, or you had to go to subcultures and to the fringes of society and now all of a sudden you know there's a lot of more mainstream more like you know professional academic type people who are starting to turn on to this and are starting to see the efficacy just because of the anecdotal experiences i think a lot of it's coming out of people who are saying this works and you know there's all kinds of politics about how one can communicate that on labeling and whatnot but anecdotally i know tons of people who have said this works and it works for me and i've had some of those you know been blessed to experience that myself with people who are a little bit more proficient than myself. Right now, I'm just like hacking through the jungle with a machete, just trying to make stuff and, and learn about things. And for me, that's what the mycopreneurial attitude is. It's like, hey, I'm gonna try this stuff out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find out how it works. I'm gonna prototype and I'm gonna revise and critique and move forward and hopefully mm. bring some, some of that good creative and healthy juju into my community and into my personal lifestyle and family. Yeah, that's amazing. I think the world is shifting where we've been in a phase where we've relied so much on show me the math, show me the science, show me the numbers. And that proves that something is feasible, that something is potent. And there's a shift happening where we are remembering that, yes, the research and isolating these constituents and knowing what, you know, ganodermic acid or the you know, irinaceans do like, yes, that's important, but equal and opposite to that is the tradition, the history, the stories, the grandmothers and the folk herbalists and the witches that have been using these medicines for thousands of years. And there's potency to that. And in the way that I was trained as an herbalist, those things have equal weight. It's not, and I hope that we can start to balance the scales a little more to the point that we really look at the past. We look at experience and the stories and the way that our species have affected humans for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we take that as equally potent knowledge as the current research that's coming out. And we can balance those together and then make decisions about formulations and tincturing and, you know, whatever we're, we're activities we're engaging in, but from both of these places, not just one or the other. 
And my initiation into the world of herbalism came through a couple of trips down to the Amazon. I was flabbergasted at the array of plants that are traditionally employed there and of their range of uses and all the way down from a tincture that was made that people would rub on their eyes to see better at night in the forest. And I really came wow. away from those early experiences. Kamalanga being another one, like sort of a dream teacher, this whole idea of there's different herbs that you can take to increase the potency or the range of your dreams. And I walked away from those experiences feeling like I had just discovered the tip of an iceberg or maybe the mm. mushroom of a mycelial root network to use a better analogy there. And, and that this is a form of technology that these plants have truly legitimate healing and exploratory capacity to them that are sadly virtually completely overlooked in the West and many other cultures. And that's starting to shift. That narrative is starting to shift as more and more people are starting to mistrust traditional pharmaceutical processes and mistrust bloated healthcare bureaucracy and starting to look for ways to, on a daily basis, take health and healing maybe into their own hands or maybe being able to source some of these things. And not just, you know, I think ordering a product and like connecting with a Four Sigmatic product or a, a mushroom revival product, et cetera, it's, it's really a gateway experience where you can start to see, well, these are outfits that have all their ducks in a row and they're, you know, firing on all cylinders, but where does this stuff come from? And I think that's what it's about is like building that relationship to nature and seeing that you're a part of it instead of having to have this extractivist mindset or that consumer culture where it's like, I'm going to order something from the global supply chain and it's going to come, it's going to help me. It's more about like re-envisioning your own relationship with nature and taking the right steps into bringing some of that magic and potency into your own life. So that's kind of my take on it. Absolutely. Oh, yes. All right. We nailed it. That's the thesis of this podcast right now, by the way. So, it really uh, is. There's one more topic of, of conversation I'd love to touch upon because speaking of kind of bringing some of these forces into my own life and into the life of my community, I, uh, I have like mountain man, weather beaten skin that I've like literally never used a skincare product in my life. And my wife is all about them. She has this whole range of amazing products and she's like trying to turn me on to some of them, which is great. But I saw that you have an interest in edible skincare products. And just in line with everything else we're talking about, that immediately piqued my interest, Danielle, because this is how it works. You know, she's saying that the fungi will open a path to you. Before Danielle and I had any correspondence, maybe two weeks ago, I started thinking about how I can get a skincare regimen in place where I'm like, hey, I'm doing these tinctures, you know, and I'm uh, starting to introduce cordyceps into my life and like I'm feeling good and feeling loosey-goosey, but I don't have any skincare regimen. So it'd be great if you could give <laughs> us the, the 101 on edible skincare and w what do you got for us there? Yeah, this is such an exciting topic and I think we are maybe even a little too early for it in the West, but that's how we like to do things at Four Sigmatic. We really try to be pioneers and uh, Edible skincare. When we talk about our skin, it's important to recognize our skin is an organ. This is the largest organ in our body, um, aside from our liver being our largest internal organ. And both of these are directly engaged with the health of our of our skin, our glow, you know, our um, ability to have moisture. And so skincare really is twofold. It's from the inside out and from the outside in, right? The health of our internal system, of our gut health, of our liver is absolutely integral to what's going to show up on the surface. But when we talk about just our skin, our skin is porous and we absorb 
everything that we put on through our skin. And this really hit home for me. Um, as a as a woman, I and as an herbalist, I am one of the few people that I know that has never been on a conventional birth control. And I found out about this lotion that my mother has actually been on since she had me. I'm the youngest child. And it's birth control, it's a bioidentical birth control in the form of a lotion and she rubs it on her arm and her leg in the morning and the evening and it's as effective as any of the other pills that women are taking for birth control and this blew my mind so several years ago I'm like what do you mean this is a lotion and this is like, how is that possible that this is being absorbed directly through your skin and it opened up this whole world where I started thinking about how in other areas, it makes sense. And we're used to like, you can be in a bath of beer and get drunk, right? Or you can be in an Epsom salt bath and we know that it absorbs, our skin absorbs all the magnesium and our muscles begin to relax and unwind. So we know in these kind of outlying examples that what we put on our skin has a direct effect on our body. And yet we are lost in this world of skincare where we are slathering from makeup to lotions to serums to butters. I mean, the amount of toxic ingredients that are actually illegal in many, many countries um, and are allowed in the U.S., we are putting these onto our largest organ and our skin doesn't have the processes that are beneficial um, to really kind of vet and say, like, okay, this is good. I want to use this. I want to ditch this. Um, when we put things on our skin, it goes directly into our bloodstream. It's this instant path into our bloodstream. So it's more quickly absorbed versus when we ingest something, we have all of these pathways, right? We, we bring something into our stomach and our liver, we gets into our liver and into our intestines. And there's all of these different kind of uh, points along the way of like, okay, I can take this in or I can ditch this here. Our skin doesn't get that luxury. We literally, what we put on our skin, it goes into our system. And so it's a direct method for absorption and we can choose to put ingredients on our skin um, that we know we want in our bodies. And so when I think about skincare, it feels to me more important that what we put on our skin is not only as clean as what we put inside our body, but cleaner. So this is kind of like, what? What do you mean? So Edible skincare, as a, of course we should be able to eat it. It should be even a status cleaner than that because it's going right into our bloodstream. And so I hope that edible skincare just becomes like the, the baseline status quo of what we put on us, we put in us. And at Four Sigmatic, we created the first three fully edible skincare products. And so they're all whole food, real ingredients. We have a serum. Um, a bunch of different beautiful oils. Uh, we have avocado oil and olive oil and grapefruit and um, frankincense. And you can take it as reishi spore oil. So you can take it as an adaptogenic supplement right in your mouth, on or under your tongue, as well as use it to hydrate and moisten your face or any skin on your body. Uh, we created a, a face mask. We put chaga and reishi uh, extract in there. There's cinnamon and cacao. So it's this like awesome detoxifying mask that you can also mix with some warm water. And it tastes like a Mexican hot chocolate, right? This spicy hot chocolate. Um, and a body butter. Uh, this body butter can be doubled as a, a fatty creamer that you put in your coffee or any hot beverage, as well as a really deeply nourishing moisturizing cream for cuticles or under your eyes or any areas that you experience dryness.
That sounds absolutely remarkable. And, you know, to me, that's the micropreneur mentality in a nutshell is this big, bold, audacious way of thinking about how we can have complete product life cycles and that we're sort of closing the loop. And it doesn't surprise me that y'all have pioneered something like that. I'm, I'm constantly having my mind blown about the applications of what people are leveraging fungi to do. And this whole idea, I think, I think there's tremendous latent capacity and latent potential, especially in the West, of people using products that maybe 15 years ago seemed unsavory or unpalatable, but when you point out the lack of waste and the, the usefulness and the resourcefulness, and beyond that, I'm sure it tastes amazing, judging by the standards you all have set with the other products I've had by Four Sigmatic, but I, I just, it's, it's really humbling and amazing to be in this position right now to start seeing all of this innovation coming out of the Myco community. And I've always been a fan of Four Sigmatic. Y'all are spearheading this. Um, so please, yeah, let me know how I can get my hands on some of that. Maybe that's going to be my skincare <laughs> regimen, double as my lion's mane coffee creamer. Really, you yeah. made a good pitch there. You made, you got one more person very interested in what you're cooking up over there. Right on. Yeah, and I'll say just like, you know, drinking mushrooms and our coffee or these ways that we think are really kind of wild and innovative, it's really nothing new. So when we look at the history of how chaga has been used for, you know, hundreds, sometimes some traditions, thousands of years, or, um, you know, several of our tremella, like several of our fungi, it's not new to use these things topically. And there's a deep tradition of using them on, on wounds and on scars and for different derm dermatological issues. And um, it's really just kind of reformatting it in a way that makes sense and is digestible for the Western world. But it feels relevant to note that, you know, this isn't this isn't that crazy. We've been using we've been using mushrooms and other plants as skincare forever. And we've just kind of gotten off track. And I think we're finally ready to to accept and bring that that philosophy back in. And just to revisit the anecdote earlier I mentioned about my experience seeing fantastic fungi at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, that's an old guard, old world venue. It's like, you know, you know, 150 years old, traditionally only of the elite upper class have been there. And it was really wild to see fantastic fungi in the screening room there because so many of the people that were there, it was actually part of the Exponential Medicine Conference put on by Singularity University. So it was very much like the cutting edge, if you will, of the scientific establishment and medical establishment. And up until that point, I had been pretty reserved on my public advocacy for mushrooms and my interest in them because I grew up in such a traditional framework and culture that I still get raised eyebrows even bringing up the topic of like lion's mane and cordyceps. But it's what's going on. What I see right now is this recontextualization of this indigenous ancient wisdom and knowledge and botany and herbalism is a huge part of that. And I love it that I'm in a position where I go to barbecues in San Diego when I'm home and I'm hanging out with people drinking craft beer and, you know, eating whatever hot dogs or whatever they got. And I start talking about Rishi or lion's mane and it's still unknown to the broader culture. Obviously there are a lot of moves and a lot of progress being made in that way, but it's exciting to me that these conversations are starting to happen at baseball stadiums and at, you know, barbecue restaurants. They're not just like reserved for these, tr these pockets of the subculture where they've kind of been driven underground in the West for, for centuries for a number of reasons, and it's starting to reemerge. So I, I totally, it resonates with me what you're saying about this is not new information. It's not 
even necessarily innovative. It's just repackaging and introducing and recontextualizing for a new audience. And we're here for it. That's what Micropreneur's mm -hmm. all about right there, Danielle. I, I was just going to say, you know, the, the inaccessibility for so long, like with Reishi, for example, it was illegal if you were a commoner to even get your hands on Reishi. If you found one out in the forest, it was by law you had to go deliver it to the queens and the kings and the emperors. Like you could not be a common person and use these because they're so powerful and so potent. And I just think what a blessing that we're living in a time where not only do we arguably need these species more than ever before for our stress and our immune systems, but that we actually have access to them. And I think the only gap is the talking about it, the discussion, the education to bring us from where we are, knowing that we need these to support our systems, knowing that they're in our grocery stores and out in the forest. And we're just, you know, like conversations Conversations like this are bridging that gap to actually get the medicine to the people. It's so exciting. I, you know, I, I'm absolutely blown away. Every time I have a conversation like this, you just mentioning that Rishi was illegal to possess as a commoner. I had no idea, but that's the direction I want to go with this podcast is just to learn more about this kind of forgotten or arguably intentionally suppressed history. And um, I just was fortunate enough to hear a presentation by Jeff Chilton, who's this incredible cultivator who works a lot in China and has been out there since the 70s doing commercial cultivation. And he was talking about how in shiitake growing regions of China, they have a temple to the shiitake mushroom in almost every village out there. And it just, it completely blew my mind because this is this unknown history that all of a sudden we're starting to have the opportunity to build these bridges and to learn a little bit more and to flesh out some of our knowledge and, and to reevaluate our own consumption habits and to reevaluate our own ways of being and coexisting with nature. And we're way past the time for that, but better late than never is kind of my mantra, right? I think we're coming to it. And I think, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of folks out there doing a lot of extraordinary work and you're, you being one of them, I'm really humbled and honored that you came on the podcast and that you're open to having this discourse with me. So thank you so much, Danielle. I truly honestly appreciate it. And I've learned a lot and I can't wait to go back and listen to this and unpack some of the finer points in detail. Right on. It's been so much fun. Thanks for having me. Keep up the amazing work, Dennis. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at mycopreneur podcast, that's the handle, don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.